Section 27 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Craig. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 14, Part 1. Through India. The heat is intense, being at the end of the heated term at the commencement of the earliest monsoons. It is certainly not less than 130 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun, when at 3 p.m. I mount and shape my course towards Amritsa, some 35 miles down the Grand Trunk Road. In such a temperature and beneath such a sun, it behooves the discreet Caucasian to dress as carefully for protection against the heat as he would against the frost of an Arctic winter. The United States Army helmet, which I have constantly worn since obtaining it at Fort Sydney, Nebraska, has now to be discarded in favor of a huge pith solar topee, an inch thick and but a little smaller than an umbrella. This overshadowing headdress imparts a cheerful mushroom-like aspect to my person and casts a shadow on the smooth whitish surface of the road as I ride along that well-nigh obliterates the shadow of the wheel and its rider. Thus sheltered from the rays of the Indian sun, I wheel through the beautifully shaded suburban streets of Lahore, past dense thickets of fruitful plantains, across the broad switchyard of the Sindhi, Delhi, and Punjab Railway, and out onto the smooth level surface of the Grand Trunk Road. This road is, beyond a doubt, the finest highway in the whole world. It extends for nearly 1,600 miles, an unbroken highway of marvelous perfection, from Peshawar on the Afghan frontier to Calcutta. It is metal for much of its length with a substance peculiar to the country known as kunkha. Kunkha is obtained almost anywhere throughout the land of the five rivers, underlying the surface soil. It is a sort of loose nodular limestone, which when wetted and rolled cements together and forms a road surface smooth and compact as an asphaltum pavement, and of excellent wearing quality. It is a magnificent road to bicycle over. Not only is it broad, level, and smooth, but for much of the way it is converted into a veritable avenue by spreading shade trees on either side. Far and near the rich Indian vegetation, stimulated to wear its loveliest garb by the early monsoon rains, is intensely green and luxuriant and through the richly verdant landscape stretches the wide, straight belt to the road. Far as I can reach, a whitish streak, glaring and quivering with reflected heat. The natives of the Punjab, the most loyal, perhaps, of the Indian races, are beginning to regard the Christian Sabbath as a holiday. And happy crowds of people in holiday attire are gathered at the Shalimar Mango Gardens, a few miles out of Lahore. Beyond the gardens, I meet a native in a big red turban and white clothes en route to Lahore on a bone shaker. He is pedaling ambitiously along with his umbrella under his left arm. As we approach each other, his swarthy countenance lights up with a glad, fraternal smile, and his hand touches his turban in recognition of the mystic brotherhood of the wheel. 
There is a mysterious bond of sympathy recognizable even between the old native-made bone-shaker and its Punjabi rider and the pale-faced Ferengi sahib mounted on his graceful triumph of Western ingenuity and mechanical skill. The free display of ivories as we approach, the expectation of fraternal recognition so plainly evident in his face, and the friendly and respectful rather than obsequious manner of saluting, tell something of that leveling tendency the wheel we sometimes hear spoken of. The park-like expanse of country on either hand continues as mile after mile is reeled off. The shady trees, the ruins, the villages, and the roadside cosmonars, with the perfect highway leading through it all, what more could wheelmen ask than this? A wayside police chalky is now seen ahead, a snug little edifice of brick beneath the sacred branches of a spreading people. A six-foot Sikh in the red and blue turban and neat blue uniform of the Punjab soldier police stands at the door and executes a stiff military salute as I wheel past. A row of conical white pillars and a grass-grown plot of ground containing a few bungalows and camping space for a regiment indicate a military reservation. These spaces are reserved at intervals of ten or twelve miles all down the Grand Trunk Road. The distance from each represents a day's march for Indian troops in time of peace. A bend in the road, and the bicycle sweeps over a substantial brick bridge, spanning an irrigating canal large enough to float a three-masted schooner. The bridge and the ditch convey early evidence of English enterprise no less conspicuous than the road itself. Neatly trimmed banks and a tropical luxuriance of overhanging vegetation give the long straight reach of water the charming appearance of flowing through a leafy tunnel. Under the stimulus of the monsoon rains and the more than tropical heat, the soil seems bursting with fatness and earth, air, and water are teeming with life. The roadway itself is swarming with pedestrians, trudging along in both directions, some there are with the inevitable umbrellas held above their heads, but more are carrying them under their arms as though in lofty contempt of 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Vehicles jingle past by the hundred filled with villagers who have been visiting or shopping at Lahore or Amritsa. Their light bamboo carts are provided with numbers of little brass cymbals that clash together musically in response to the motion of the vehicle. The occupants are fairly loaded down with silver jewelry, and for color and picturesqueness generally, it is safe to assume that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. The women particularly seem to literally revel in the exuberance of bright clothing adorning their dusky proportions. The profusion of jewelry, the merry jingle-jangle of the cymbals, the more than generous heat, and the seeming bountifulness of everything. These Sikh and Jatni merrymakers early impressed me as being particularly happy and light-hearted people. Splendid wheeling though it be, it soon becomes distressingly apparent that propelling a bicycle has now to be considered in connection with the overpowering heat. Half the distance to Amritsa is hardly covered, and the riding time scarcely two hours, yet it finds me reclining beneath the shade of a roadside tree more used up than five times the distance would warrant in a less enervating climate. The greensward around me as I recline in the shade is teeming with busy insects, and the trees are swarming with the beautiful winged life of the tropical air. 
flocks of parakeets with most gorgeous plumage, blue, red, green, gold, and every conceivable hue, flit hither and thither or sweep past in whirring flight. Some of the native pedestrians pause for a moment and cast a wondering look at the unaccustomed spectacle of a sahib and a bicycle reclining alone beneath a wayside tree. All salaam deferentially as they pass by, but there is a refreshing absence of the spirit of obtrusion that sometimes made life a burden among the Turks and Persians. In his disgust at the aggressive curiosity of the Persians, Captain E., my companion from Meshed to Constantinople, had told me, You'll find when you get to India that a sahib there is a sahib. And the strikingly deferential demeanor of the natives I have encountered on the road today forcibly reminds me of his remarks. The myriads of soldier ants crossing the road in solid phalanx or climbing the trees, the winged jewels of the air flitting silently here and there, the picturesque natives and their deferential salams, all these only serve to wean one's thoughts from the oppressive heat for a moment. At times one fairly gasps for breath and looks involuntarily about in forlorn search for some place of escape, if only for a moment from the stifling atmosphere. A feeling of utter lassitude and loss of ambition comes over one, the importance of accomplishing one's object diminishes, and the necessity of yielding to the pressure of the fearful heat and taking things easy becomes the all-absorbing theme of the imagination. A supreme and heroic effort of the will is necessary to arouse one from the inclination to remain in the shade indefinitely, regardless of everything else. No sort of accommodation is to be obtained this side of Amrita, however, so waiting until the dreadful power of the sun is tempered somewhat by his retirement beneath the trees, I resume my journey, making several brief halts in deference to an overwhelming sense of lassitude ere completing the thirty-five miles. Owing to these frequent halts, it is after dark when I arrive at Amritsa, a thoroughly wilted individual, and suffering agonies from the prickly heat aggravated by the feverish temperature superinduced by the exertion of the afternoon ride. My khaki suit and underclothes hold almost as much moisture as though I had just been fished out of the river and my dry-drained corporeal system is clamorous for the wherewithal to quench the fires of its feverish heat as I alight in the suburbs of Amritsa and inquire for the dark bungalow. A willing native guides me to a hotel where a smooth-mannered Parsi Boniface accommodates sahibs with supper, charpoy, and chota hazari for the small sum of four rupees. Punkawalas, paniwalas, sweepers, etc., extra. A cooling douche with water kept at a low temperature in the celebrated porous bottles, a change of underclothing, and a pukawala vigorously engaged in creating our artificial breeze soon changed things for the better. All these refreshing and renovating appliances, however, barely suffice to stimulate one's energy up to the duty of jotting down in one's diary a brief summary of the day's happenings. The punkah of India is a long, narrow fan. Suspended by cords from the ceiling, attached to it is another cord which finds its way outside through a convenient hole in the wall or window frame. For the magnificent sum of three annas, six cents, the hopeful punkawala sits outside and fills the room with soothing, sleep-inducing breezes for the space of a day or night. 
by a constant seesawing motion of the string. Few Europeans are able to sleep at night or exist during the day without the Punkawala's services for at least nine months in the year. The slightest negligence on his part at night is sufficient to summon the sleeper instantly from the land of dreams to the stern reality that the dusky imp outside has himself dropped off to sleep. A pardonable imprecation delivered in loud, threatening tones, or in the case of a person vengefully inclined, or once too often made a victim, a stealthy visit to the open door, a well-aimed boot, and the pendulous puka again swings to and fro, banishing the newly awakened prickly heat, and fanning the recumbent figure on the charpoy with grateful breezes that quickly send him off to sleep again. A slight fall of rain during the night tempers somewhat the oppressive heat, and the zephyrs of the prevailing monsoons blow stiffly against me as I pedal southward in the early morning. The rain has improved rather than injured the Kunkah Road, and it is moreover something of a toss-up as to whether the adverse wind is advantageous or otherwise. On the one hand, it exacts increased muscular effort to ride against it, but on the other, its beneficent services as a cooler are, are measurably apparent. One needs only to traverse the Grand Trunk Road for a few days in order to obtain a comprehensive idea of India's teeming population. Vehicles and pedestrians throng the road again this morning, pouring into Amritsa as though to attend some great festival. The impression of some festive occasion obtains additional colors from parties of musicians who keep up a perpetual tom-toming on their drums as they trudge along. The object of their noisiness is apparently to gratify their own love of the sounding rattle of the drums. At the police chowki of Gundiala, ten miles from Amritsa, a halt is made for rest and a drink of water. To avoid trampling on the caste prejudices or the sanctimonious religious feelings of the natives, everybody drinks from his hands or from a cheap earthenware dish that may afterwards be smashed. The Sikhs and Mohammedans of the Punjab are far more reasonable in this matter than are the Brahmins and other ultra-holy idolaters of the country farther south. Among the Hindus, where caste prejudices exist throughout all the strata of society, to avoid the awful consequences of touching their lips to a vessel out of which some unworthy wretch a shade less holy has previously drunk, the fastidious worshipper of Krishna, Vishnu, or Kamadeva always drinks from his hands, unless possessed of a private drinking vessel of his own. The hands are held in position to form a trough leading to the mouth, while an assistant pours water in at one end, the recipient receives it at the other. No little skill and care is required to prevent the water running down one's sleeve. The average native seems to think the human throat a gutter down which the water will flow as fast as he can pour it into the hands. The flowing yellow flood of Bias River, now at flood and spreading itself over the width of a mile, makes an impassable break in my road soon after midday. A ferry boat usually plies across the stream, but by reason of the broad area of overflow and the consequent difficulty of working it, it is moored up for the time being. Fortunately, the Sindhi, Punjab, and Delhi Railroad crosses the river on a fine bridge nearby with a regular ferry train service in operation. Repairing thither, I find in charge of the ferry train an old Anglo-Indian engineer who prevails upon me to accept his hospitality for the night. 
Hundreds of natives passed the night round about the railway station, waiting to cross the bridge on the first morning train. Nowhere else in the world does a gathering of people present so picturesque and interesting a sight as in sunny Hindostan. These people gathered about the Bias River station looked more like a company rigged out for the spectacular stage than the ordinary everyday mortals attending to the prosaic business of life. The nose rings worn by many of the women are so massive and heavy that silken cords are attached and carried to some support on the head to relieve the nostril of the weight. The rims of the ears are likewise grievously overburdened with ornaments. These unoffending appendages are pierced with a number of holes all round the rim from lobe to top. Each hole contains a massive ring, almost large and heavy enough for a bracelet, the weight of which pulls the ear all out of shape. Simple yet gaudy costumes prevail, garments of red, yellow, blue, green, olive, and white, with gold tinsel, drape the graceful forms of the dusky Sikh or Jatni bells, and not a whit less picturesque and party-colored are the costumes of their husbands, brothers, and fathers. Fine fellows, mostly, tall, straight, military-looking men with handsome faces and fierce mustachios. Not a few thoroughbred Jats are mingled in the crowd, the stout-built, thick-limbed jats, the warlike race with the steel or silver discus surmounting their queer pyramidal headdress. Under the independent government of their people by the gurus or ruler-priests of the last century, and particularly under the regulations of the celebrated Guru Govind, every Sikh was considered a warrior from his birth, and was always required to wear steel eerie some form or other about his person. The Jats, being the most enterprising and warlike tribe of the territory, acknowledging the rule of the Gurus and the religious teachings of the Adi Granth as their faith, takes a special pride in commemorating the bravery and warlike qualities of their ancestors by still wearing the distinguishing steel quoits on their heads. Sesame or banyan trees, shading twenty yards width of luxuriant greensward on either side of the road, and each and every tree sheltering groups of natives, resting, idling, washing their clothes in some silent pool, or tending a few grazing buffaloes, form a truly Arcadian scene for mile after mile next day. These buffaloes are huge, unwieldy animals with black, hairless hides, strong and heavy almost as rhinoceroses. In striking contrast to them are the aristocratic little cream-colored Brahmini cows, with the curious big camel hump on their withers. These latter animals are pampered and revered and made much of among the Brahmins. Mythology has it that Brahma created cows and Brahmins at the same time, and the cow is therefore an object of worship and veneration. Taken all in all, the worship of the Hindus has something eminently rational about it. Their worship is frequently bestowed upon some of the tangible object that contributes directly to their material enjoyment. It is very much like going back to the first principles of gratitude for direct blessings received to worship Mother Ganga, the noble stream that brings down the moisture from the Himalayas to water their plains and quicken into life their needy crops, or to worship the gentle bovine that provides them daily with milk and cheese and ghee. Wonderful legends are told of the cow in Hindu mythology. The Ramayana tells of a certain marvelous cow owned by a renowned hermit. 
the hermit being honored by a visit from the king, who had with him a numerous retinue, was sorely puzzled how to provide refreshments for his princely guests. The cow, however, proved herself equal to the emergency, and obedient to her saintly lord, viands to suit each taste outpoured. Honey she gave and roasted grain, mead sweet with flowers and sugar cane, each beverage of flavor rare. And food of every sort were there. Hills of hot rice and sweetened cakes and curdled milk and soup and lakes. Vast beakers flowing to the brim with sugared drink prepared for him and dainty sweetmeats deftly made before the hermit's guest were laid. In all Brahmin communities are sacred bulls allowed to roam at their own sweet will among the crops and help themselves. Chowl and dude, rice and milk, is obtained at noon from a village eating stall. The rice is dished up to all customers in basins improvised from a broad banyan leaf, so that nobody's caste may be jeopardized by handling spoons or dishes that others have touched. Most of the natives manage to eat with their fingers, but they bring for the sahib a stiff green leaf which is bent into the form of a scoop and made to answer the purpose of a spoon. The milk is served in valueless earthenware basins that are tossed into the street and broken after being once used. There is a regular caste of artisans in India whose hereditary profession is the manufacture of this cheap pottery. Almost every village has its family of pottery makers who manufacture them for the use of the community. The people are curious about the bicycle and the sahib's peculiar manner of traveling without the usual native servant and eating rice at an ordinary village stall. They are, however, far from being in the least obtrusive or annoying. On the contrary, their respectfulness and conservatism is something to admire. Although they gather about the bicycle in a compact ring, not a hand in all the company is meddlesome enough to touch it. Through the smooth, kunkulade bazaars of Julandar, so different from the unrideable bazaars we have heretofore been made familiar with, and I wheel past the Queen's Garden and into the cantonment along lovely avenues and perfect roads. The detachment of royal artillery, whose quarters my road leads directly past, is composed largely of the gallant sons of Aaron. And as I wheel into the cantonment, an artilleryman seated on a Eve Harpony beneath a spreading neem tree sings out to his comrades, Be jabbers, boys. Here's the Yankee fights traveling around the world with a bicycle. I have with me a letter of introduction to an officer stationed at Jalandar. Upon inquiry, however, I find that he is absent at Simla on leave. Desirous of seeing something of Tommy Atkins in his Indian quarters, I therefore accept an invitation to remain at the barracks of the Royal Artillery until ready to resume my journey in the morning. At this season of the year, an Indian cantonment presents the appearance of a magnificent park. The barracks are large, commodious structures, built with a view to securing the best results for the health and comfort of the troops. No soldiers in the world are so well-fed, housed, and clothed as the British soldiers in India, and none receive as much pay except the soldiers of the United States Army. That they are justly entitled to everything 
that can contribute to their happiness and welfare goes without saying. For actual service rendered and the importance of the responsibilities resting on their shoulders, it is little enough to say that the British soldiers in India are entitled to a greater measure of consideration than the soldiers of any other army in existence. This little army of fifty or sixty thousand men is practically responsible for the good behavior of one-sixth of the world's population, saying nothing of affairs without. And in addition to this is the wearisome round of existence in an Indian barrack, the enervating climate, and the ennui so poisonous to the active Anglo-Saxon temperament. After all that is said for or against the Anglo-Indian army, the unprejudiced critic cannot fail to admit that they are the finest body of fighting men in existence, a force against which it would be impossible for an equal number of the soldiers of any other country to contend. That the old dominant spirit of the British soldier is yet rampant as ever may be seen perhaps plainer in the cantonments of India than anywhere else. The manifest superiority of Tommy Atkins as a fighter stands out in bold relief against the gentle populations of India, who regard him as the very incarnation of war and warlike attributes. His own confidence in his ability to whip all the multitudinous enemies of England put together is as great today as it ever was, and nothing would suit him better than a campaign against the military colossus of the North in defense of the British interests in India he now so faithfully guards. The interest in my appearance is deepened by my recent adventures in Afghanistan, and letters partly descriptive of the same that have appeared in late issues of the Indian press. A mile or so from the artillery barracks are the quarters of a detachment of the Connaught Rangers. A couple of non-commissioned officers in the Rangers, I am happy to discover, are wheelmen, and when the tidings of the around-the-world riders' arrival reaches them, they wheel over and endeavor to have me become their guest. The Royal Artillery boys refuse to give their protege up, however, and the rivalry is compromised by my paying the rangers a visit and then coming back to my first entertainer's quarters for the night. The evening is spent pleasantly in telling stories of camp life in India and Afghanistan. Some of the soldiers present have been recently stationed at Peshawar and other points near the northern frontier, and tell of the extraordinary precautions that had to be adopted to prevent their rifles being stolen at night from the very racks within the barracks rooms where they were sleeping. An officer at the cantonment claims to have cured himself of enlarged spleen, the bane of so many Anglo-Indian officers, by daily riding on a tricycle. He then disposed of it to advantage to a native gentleman who had noticed the marvelous improvement it had wrought in his health, and who was also affected with the same disease. The native also cured himself, and now firmly believes the tricycle possessed of some magic properties. Release of punkah wallahs are provided for the barracks, a number of punkahs being connected so that one coolie fans the occupants of a dozen or more charpoys. In talking about these useful and very necessary servants, some of the comments indulged in by the gentleman who first invited me into the barracks are well worth repeating. Be jabbers, and you'd have to keep awake all night to swear at the lazy devils in order to get a wink of sleep. And the moment ye's drop a sleep, ye's are awake, are choice specimens heard, in reference to the Punkawala's confirmed habit of dozing off in the silent watches of the night. 
The two wheelmen of the Connaught Rangers accompany me five miles to the Bain River Ferry in the cool of early morning. They would have escorted me as far as Umbala, they say, had they known of my coming in time to arrange leave of absence. Twenty-five miles of continuously smooth and level kunkah bring me to Fulor, a Mohammedan town of several thousand inhabitants. The fort of Fulor is a conspicuous object on the left of the road. It was formerly an important depot of military supplies, and in the time of Sikh independence was regarded by them as the key to the Punjab. Since the mutiny, it has dwindled in importance as a military stronghold, but is held by a detachment of native infantry. A mile or so from Fulor is a splendid girder railway bridge crossing the river Sudlej. The outflow of the river extends for miles, converting the depressions into lakes and the dry ditches into sloughs and creeks. Resting under the shade of a peepul tree, I while away a passing hour watching native fishermen endeavoring to beguile the finny denizens of the overflow into their custody. Their tactics are to stir up the water and make it muddy for a space around, so that the fish cannot see them. They then toss a flat disk of wood, so that it falls with an audible splash a few yards away. This maneuver is intended to deceive the fish into thinking something edible has fallen into the water. Woe betide the guileless fish, however, whose innocent, confiding nature is thus imposed upon. For swish goes a circular drop-net over the spot, from the meshes of which the luckless captive tries in vain to struggle. The river Sutlej has its source in the holy lake of Manas Saravara, in Tibet's most mountainous regions, and for several hundred miles its course leads through mighty canyons, grand and rugged as the canyons of the Colorado and the Gunnison. It is upon the upper reaches of the Sutlej that the celebrated swing bridges called Kararus are in operation. A Kararus consists of a bagar grass or yak hair rope stretched from bank to bank, across which passengers are pulled, suspended in a swinging chair or basket. The Kararus is also largely patronized by the swarms of monkeys inhabiting the foothill jungles of the Himalayas. Nothing could be well more congenial to these festive animals than the blondin-like performance of crossing over some deep roaring gorge along the swaying rope of a Kararus. Like other rivers of the level Punjab plains, the Sutlej has at various times meandered from its legitimate channel. Eight miles south of its present bed, the large and flourishing city of Ludhiana once stood on its bank. Ludhiana and its dak bungalow provides refreshments and a three-hour siesta beneath the cooling and seductive punka. Besides an interesting and instructive tete with a Eurasian civil officer spending the day here, among other startling confidences, this olive-tinted gentleman declares that to him the punkah is unbearable, its pendulous swinging motion invariably making him seasick. Through a country of alternate sandy downs and grazing areas, my road leads at length through the territory of the Raja of Sirhind. Picturesque and impressive fortresses and high, crenellated stone walls around the villages gives the Raja's little dominion here a most decided medieval appearance, and dark, dense patches of sugar-cane attest the marvelous richness of the sandy soil, wherever water can be applied. Moreover, as if to complete the interesting picture of a native prince's rule, 
on the road is encountered a gaily dressed party in charge of some youthful bigwig on a monster elephant a thick striped mattress makes a soft platform on the elephant's broad back and here the young voluptuary squats as naturally as on the floor of his room some of the attendants are dancing along before him noisily knuckling tambourines and drums while others trudge alongside or behind the elephant regards the bicycle with symptoms of mild apprehension and swerves slightly to one side the police officer of the kermandalachalki just off the raja of sirhind's territory voluntarily tenders me the shelter of his quarters just as the sun is finishing his race for the day by painting the sky with fanciful tints and streaks the long straight avenue which i have wheeled down for miles hereabout runs east and west the sun rotund and fiery sets immediately in the perspective of the avenue and at his disappearance there shoot from the same point iridescent javelins that spread fan-like over the whole heavens a sight never to be forgotten is the long white road and the ribs of the glorious celestial fan meeting together in the vista-like distance and oh for the brush and palette and genius of a turner one of the rainbow-tinted javelins splits the crescent moon and holds it to toast before the glowing sunset fires like a piece of green cheese end of section 27